0: Translated by Matthew Barton, 16 lectures entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution. This is Lecture 14, entitled Symbolism and Imagination in Relation to the Play, The Soul's Probation, given in Berlin on the 19th of December, 1911. Today I want to speak about the second of our mystery plays titled The Soul's Probation as you will have seen in all these plays, but especially The Soul's Probation, an attempt is made to bring dramatic portrayal to bear upon our spiritual scientific worldview. Especially in this play, The Soul's Probation, an attempt has been made to fully embody the idea of reincarnation in its effect upon the reality of human soul life. I am sure I do not need to say that what happens in this play is not purely imaginary, but that it fully corresponds, in a sense, to esoteric observations. And the depiction is therefore, in a sense, fully realistic. This evening I want to speak about the need that arose to create a kind of transition from Capatius' life, so far, to his immersion in and contemplation of a previous life, of a preceding incarnation. Since the soul's probation was completed I have often asked myself what can supply Capacious with a bridge leading him from life in a world in which he has albeit in a keen and brilliant way known only what outer sense perception of the world offers him a form of perception bound up with the instrument of the brain what can enable him to make the transition from this world into the world in which he then immerses himself, which is only available to occult sense organs. I have often asked myself why the fairy tale with the three figures necessarily creates this transition for Capacius. You see, it is, of course, not a rational calculation or consideration that required the fairy tale to be introduced at this point in the play, but it arose imaginatively. Only after writing the play... Can one ask why such a fairy tale became necessary at this point? And in relation to this question concerning the soul's probation, perspectives arose for me that seemed illuminating for the poetry of fairy tales in general, and for poetry in connection especially with the anthroposophic worldview. If people can come to the point of realizing in their lives, in practice, the categories of soul expressed in its division into sentient soul, mind soul, and consciousness soul, then certain felt enigmas will arise for them in a purely primary, feeling way about their place in the world and their relationship to it. These enigmas cannot be expressed at all in our ordinary language and our ordinary conceptual forms. And this is simply because we live today in too intellectual an era to express in words, and in everything words facilitate, the subtle interplay that arises between these three aspects of the soul. We can do this instead by choosing a medium through which the soul's relationship to the world appears as a manifold and yet also very specific and manifest one. What runs throughout the soul's probation, as a relationship of all the events it depicts to what is expressed in the three figures of Philia, Astrid and Luna, had to be conveyed, not in sharp contours, but in a way that nevertheless possesses, through certain soul energies, something that can render tangible and vivid our human relationship to the world. And the only way to do this was to show how, through the telling of this fairy tale, the three figures invoke in Capacius' soul a very particular urge, a very specific occurrence that makes him ready and mature enough to descend into the worlds that only now begin to become actual real worlds for the human being. I'd like first to recount this fairy tale and then go on to link these reflections to it. Long quote Once there lived a boy, the only child of poor forest folk, growing up in lonely woodland. Besides his parents, he knew few others. His build was frail, his skin almost transparent. Looking long into his eyes, you'd glimpse the deepest spirit wonders. And though few encountered him, he did not lack for friends. When golden sunshine gleamed in nearby mountains, the boy's pondering eyes would draw the spirit gold into his soul. And the nature of his heart grew to be like the morning sun. But when the rays of morning could not pierce dark clouds, and a mood of gloom had wrapped the mountains in its shroud, then his eye grew dim, his heart grew full of melancholy. Thus He was fully given up to the spirit weaving of the world that lay so close around him, which he felt no stranger to him than his very being, than his body's very limbs. Friends he had also in the forest trees and in its flowers. Spirit beings spoke to him from the swaying tops and crowns of trees and from the chalices of forest flowers. He understood their murmurings the boy could eavesdrop on wondrous secret worlds whenever his soul communed with what to others would be lifeless things. Often in the evening his anxious parents found their much-loved son was missing. Close by he tarried where a spring sprang forth from a rock and spraying into mist the water drops burst over stones. When silver moonlight shone forth, magically reflected in a sparkling play of colors, within the water spray, the boy for hours could watch this wonder, seeing forms of spirit that rose before his inner vision within the water's pulse and in the flickering moonlight shimmer. These formed themselves to three female figures and spoke to him of things for which his soul was thirsting. Now... On one mild summer night, when once again the boy sat at the spring, one of these women clasped to herself a thousand pearls of the water-drops and gave them to the second woman. She formed from them a gleaming silver vessel and passed it to the third of them, who filled it with silver moonlight, whereupon she gave it to the boy who watched this happening in youthful seership. In the night that followed this he had a dream in which a wild dragon stole the cup from him. Only thrice more after this night the boy witnessed the wonder of the spring. Then the ladies came no more, even though the boy, still musing, sat beside the spring in moonlight's silver gleam. Thrice three hundred and sixty weeks passed by. The boy had long become a man, had left his parents' house, the forest, and gone to live in a far-off town. One evening, tired from hard work, he sat there musing on what life might still hold in store for him, and then he felt himself transported suddenly back to the rock, the spring, and saw the water ladies once again. But now he heard them speak. The first said this to him, Think of me whenever you feel alone. I draw the gaze of the human soul into ether distances and starry breaths, and give to any who with feeling seek me the drink of hope in life from my wondrous cup. Close quote. And then the second spoke quote, Do not forget me if at moments courage fails you, for I guide the human heart's impulses into depths of soul and upward to spirit's heights. To those who seek my powers I forge the strength of faith and life with my wondrous hammer. The third then spoke as follows, quote, Raise your eye of spirit to me if life's riddles attack you from all sides. For I spin the threads of thoughts in labyrinths of life, in depths of soul. And those who harbour trust in me, for them I weave the rays of love for life upon my wondrous loom. Each night that followed this, the man dreamed that a wild dragon encircled him in rings and yet could not approach him closer. The beings he long ago beheld beside the rocky spring protected him, for they accompanied him from his home, had come to dwell beside him in the far-off town. Steiner again. It seems to me that the mood of fairy tale is altogether something that mediates between the outer world and everything that human beings once perceived in worlds of spirit in ancient original clairvoyant vision, and which they can still perceive today if they raise themselves to these worlds of spirit, either through particular abnormal capacities or through properly schooled clairvoyance. The world of the fairy tale is perhaps the most wholly justified intermediary between this latter world and the world of outer reality, and that of reason and the senses. It seems to me necessary to find a certain explanation for this whole place of the fairy tale and the mood of the fairy tale between these different worlds. Now, it is extraordinarily difficult to build a bridge between these two realms, but then it occurred to me that this could be done in the form of a fairy tale itself. A very simple fairy tale does indeed seem to me more apt here than all theoretical explanations. Such a fairy tale might run as follows. Long quote. Once upon a time there was a poor lad who had a clever cat. And this clever cat helped the poor lad, who owned nothing apart from himself, to a great fortune. This is what she did. She persuaded the king that the poor lad owned a great wondrous and remarkable estate, which the king himself would do well to see. And the clever cat succeeded in getting the king to set off on a journey to see it, and to travel through many very remarkable regions. Wherever he went, the clever cat arranged for the king to be told that the great estate of this poor lad possessed great fields and meadows and all kinds of wonderful buildings. Finally the king arrived at a great and magical castle, but he arrived a little late, in the terms of a fairy tale, since it was already the time when a great giant or troll returned home from his travels through the universe and wished to enter his palace again. The king was inside the palace and wished to see all its magical wonders. The clever cat stretched out, therefore, in front of the gateway, so that the king should not notice that all this actually belonged to the giant, the troll. When the giant returned home toward morning, the cat began to tell the giant a story, persuading him that he must listen to it. At great length she told him how the farmer plows his fields, how he manures it, how he must plow in the manure, how he fetches the seed that he wishes to sow, and then how he sows it. She told him such a long story that morning came and the sun rose, And then the clever cat told the giant, who had never seen this sight, to stay and look upon the golden virgin in the east, the sun. But there is a law to which giants are subject, and when he turned round to look at the sun, he burst asunder. And so, by delaying the giant in this way, the palace became the poor lad's property. He no longer had his estate by hearsay only, by the cat's machinations but he now did truly own the giant's palace and everything that belonged to it. Steiner again. This little seemingly insignificant fairy tale is actually very central to what we can call the world history of the fairy tale mood in our time. You see, if we consider human beings in their earthly evolution, most of them, as they have evolved on earth, passing through all incarnations, in all their current incarnations, are now comparable to the poor lad. Today, by comparison to other eras, we really are like the poor lad and possess nothing but a clever cat. But the clever cat is something we certainly possess, for this is our reason, our intellect. And what we possess through our senses today, what we have by virtue of our reason nowadays, which is bound up with the brain, Is something very impoverished compared to the whole world of the cosmos, compared to everything we pass through in the conditions of Saturn, Sun, and Moon. We are all really this poor lad, possessing only our power of reasoning, which can set about ascribing to us an imaginary estate. In our present situation, we are this poor lad. We are this in terms of our consciousness but our I, capital, is rooted in hidden depths of soul life. These hidden depths of soul life are connected with countless worlds and countless cosmic occurrences, all of which play into human life. But the modern human being has become a poor lad and knows nothing of all this any more. can only at most, through the clever cat, through philosophy, explain all sorts of things about the meaning of what he sees with his eyes or perceives through his other senses. And when modern people wish, after all, to speak of something that surpasses the world of the senses, if they wish to acquire something that goes beyond the sense world, then they do so, and have been doing so for many centuries now, in art and poetry. But our time especially, a remarkable time of transition in many respects, shows us very clearly that people do not get very far beyond this poor lad sense of things, even if they are able to integrate poetry and art into the world of senses as it currently surrounds us. In our era, you see, people have reached toward naturalism through a kind of lack of belief in higher art, higher poetry, a purely external reflection and representation of the outer world. It surely cannot be denied that our epoch has something of a mood of loss and regret, that despite the inventiveness with which art and poetry represent reality, our age has an underlying sense that all this is illusory and not truth. This mood does prevail in our time. The king within, who originates in the world of spirit, is in great need of persuasion by the clever cat by the power of reason that we possess today, to accept that what imagination awakens in art and endows it with is indeed in some sense a true human possession. The human being, the king within, is persuaded initially, but this is not worth much, only convinces for a little while. Eventually, and we live at the beginning of such a time, People experience the need to gain access again to the higher spiritual world, the actual world of spirit. People feel an urge, and this is becoming apparent everywhere today, to re-ascend into spheres of the world of spirit. A certain transition has to arrive And this transition can scarcely be better or more easily effected than by re-enlivening the mood of fairy tale. This atmosphere of fairy tales, to put this in purely outward terms, really has the capacity to prepare people's souls for experiencing occurrences that shine in upon us from higher, supersensible worlds. The very way in which a fairy tale presents itself to us without claiming in any way to represent outer reality, the way in which it simply and pluckily lifts itself beyond all laws of outer reality, enables the fairy tale to prepare our mood of soul to receive the higher world of spirit once again. The rough and ready faith achieved in olden times through primitive clairvoyance has to burst asunder like the troll giant when faced by outward reality. He is subdued by the clever cat's questions, through the cat's narratives that are spun far and wide over outward reality. Certainly we can spin such cat narratives for a long time, showing how reality now and then necessitates us taking refuge in spiritual explanations. We can expound in lengthy philosophical treatises how this or that question can be answered by referring to the world of spirit. In doing so, we retain something like a reminiscence of olden times. We can hold the giant's attention for a while by relating things from the olden days. But faced by the clear language of reality, what has been salvaged in this way from olden times will not stand the test and will explode like the giant when he sees the sun rising. And this mood, the exploding giant, is something we need to know about. Here we touch on something that can in some degree illumine the psychology of the fairy tale. I cannot expound on these things theoretically. I can only discuss the psychology of the fairy tale in terms of inner observation. And I'd like to say the following about this. Let us say that various aspects of the forms and configurations of the world of spirit, as we have described in brief in the lectures on Pneumatosophy, stand before someone in living imagination. Within Anthroposophy, of course, we do relate many things concerning spiritual worlds. This must first stand in living fashion before a person's soul. But in terms of outer description or depiction Not much would result if we were only to describe what unfolds there before a particular soul, even before the clairvoyant soul. A curious disharmony arises in the soul if we try to invest the grim web of modern thinking with truths, such as we expounded here in the last three sessions, about Saturn, Sun, and Moon conditions. We feel constricted everywhere, in relation to the things that then stand before our soul. And the part of us that must capture mysteries of the higher worlds appears to us actually as very troll-like. We become clumping great troll giants when we try to encompass the forms of the world of spirit. And of course, in a sense, we have to voluntarily let these forms of spirit explode in the sunlight of day to adapt them to the mood of the modern world, have to let their clairvoyance blow up when they encounter outer reality. And yet we can still retain something. We can retain what the poor lad retains. What we can come to possess in the immediacy of our modern souls is the transformation, but the sober and appropriate transformation, of the gigantic content of the imaginative world in the many layers of meaning of a fairy tale. Then such a human soul will indeed feel like a king who is led to what does not initially belong to this soul at all, what does not belong at all to the soul of the poor lad. The soul comes to possess this when the gigantic troll bursts asunder by relinquishing the imaginative world in the face of reality and introducing it into the palace that imagination can build. Whereas in olden times, human imagination, the imagination of the poor lad, was nourished by the imaginative world, this is no longer possible for souls at our modern evolutionary stage. And yet even if we first have to relinquish the whole imaginative world and press it all into the multi-layered mood and meanings of fairy tale, which does not adhere to external reality, then something that is a deep, deep truth can remain to us in the world of fairy-tale imagination. In other words, the poor lad, who has nothing really apart from the cat, the clever faculty of reason, can possess in the mood of fairy-tale something he needs in modern life, so that the soul can be educated to enter the worlds of spirit in a new fashion. It therefore seems to me true to the psychology of Cupasius, someone who has very much emerged from the contemporary world of thought, that, albeit from a more spiritualized view of the contemporary world, he enters the world of fairy tale, and that this discloses itself to him as something new, as a real relationship to the occult world. And therefore also something like a fairy tale has to be introduced at the place of Capetius' transition between outer reality and the world into which he is to descend, to behold himself in a former incarnation. What I say here as a purely personal perception, as the reason why it occurred to me to be necessary to place this fairy tale at this particular point in the play, accords with what we could call the development of fairy tale within the whole of humanity's evolution. Altogether, it accords extremely well with the way in which fairy tales arose within humanity. If we look back to past times of human evolution, we find a certain primitive clairvoyance everywhere in ancient peoples, a capacity to behold the world of spirit. In those times, therefore, we need to distinguish not only between alternating states of waking and sleeping, or also at most a chaotic transitional stage of dream, but we must also assume that ancient peoples possessed another transitional condition between sleep and waking life as well, and that this was not a dream state, but a beholding of reality that enabled them to live in coexistence with the realm of spirit. Today people live in the world consciously during waking life, but only with a sensory consciousness, and the power of reason. They have grown impoverished, like the poor lad who has nothing but his clever cat. But then they can also live in the world of spirit during the night, and yet then they are asleep, they have no consciousness of spiritual worlds. Between these two conditions, primordial people still had a third state, which conjured before their souls something like mighty pictures. They live then in what the conscious clairvoyant who has achieved the art of clairvoyant vision also possesses, except that the latter is not in a dreamlike chaotic state, but can behold a world of reality. But in fact, in ancient times, people could also encompass their imaginations with clear consciousness. Primordial people lived in these three conditions. And when they felt their souls broadened into the spiritual cosmos and connected everywhere with beings of spirit of various kinds, encountering the hierarchies, and beings of spirit living in the elements, in earth, water, air, and fire, when they felt their being enlarged beyond the limits of their existence, then in these intermediate states they experienced themselves as the giant who always bursts when the sun rises, whereupon, They had to enter waking life. These accounts, you see, are not so unrealistic. Nowadays, when people no longer feel the whole weight of words, they may assume that the word, in quotes, burst is chosen at random, unthinkingly. But this bursting really does correspond to a kind of reality. People of ancient times felt their being growing out into a whole totality of worlds, And when the golden virgin of dawn came in the morning and their eyes had to accustom themselves to outer reality again, the touch or blow of outer reality appeared to them like something that drove asunder what they had beheld before, that burst apart what they had been. But the true king within human nature did not allow himself to be prevented from introducing into the world of ordinary reality something from the world in which the soul itself is rooted. And what was introduced from this world into ours is the projection, the shadow image of what is experienced there, the world of imagination, of true imagination, not fantasy, which just ties life's rag-bag of odds and ends together, but real imagination, whose seat is the inner soul, that is impelled from within outward, in every aspect of creative endeavor. Naturalistic fantasy, on the other hand, pursues a path that is the very reverse of true imagination. Naturalistic fantasy seeks its motifs here and there in outer reality and ties these rags together, combines them to produce combinatory images and this sort of fantasy prevails only in times when art is in decline. In the shadow images, cast by the light of imagination, on the other hand, something is at work that does not have this or that particular form, and does not initially know what outer forms it should create. From within outward it seeks creative expression. Then, as if in a darkening of the light process, something emerges that bends toward true reality in surrender, creating, as it were, after-images of it. And this is precisely the opposite process from what we can so often observe today in modern art. From a center, everything is drawn toward this imagination which stands as spirit, initially of an imaginative reality, behind our sense-reality, And what is here created is an imaginative reality that can legitimately grow into our reality out of spiritual worlds, can, if you like, become the legitimate possession of the poor lad, that is, of modern human beings, who are confined to the poverty of the outer sense world. Of all forms of literature, fairy tales are least of all bound to outward reality, if we study sagas, myths, and legends, we will always find that their traits, while hearkening to supersensible laws, are pervaded by the laws of external reality, that they trace a path from the world of spirit into the external world. And the sources of historical accounts, or those that are in some way connected with history, are of course connected with actual figures. Fairy tale alone does not allow itself to be configured in real or historical garb, but remains quite free in regard to them. It can draw as it likes on everything that exists in reality and does so. Fairy tales are therefore the purest offspring of ancient primitive clairvoyance, are something like compensation for loss of ancient primitive clairvoyance prosaic minds, pedants who regard everything with a professorial eye may not feel this nor do they need to for the simple reason that they invariably want to establish the relationship of any truth to outer reality a figure like Capetius seeks the truth above all else he cannot be satisfied by asking how a truth relates to in quotes, reality is a truth confirmed he asks himself if we say it represents something that accords with the outer world? Things can be as true as you like, can be true and right and correct, yet may have as little connection with reality as the truth of that village lad who went to buy buns. His sums were correct, but they bore no relation to reality. He worked out that with his ten pennies he could get five buns. This village lad behaved just like the philosophers who theorize about reality. But what he failed to consider was that in that particular village you got one free if you bought five. This was something that had no logic about it and that no philosophy would have concluded. But nevertheless it was reality. So Capetius is not interested in how a particular idea, one or another concept, accords with reality. Instead, his first question was what the human soul experiences in relation to any concept it forms. In everything that can only be outer reality, the human soul experiences desiccation, aridity, the capacity for continual death in the soul. And so Capacius needs to be refreshed by Frau Felicia's fairy tale, needs something that need not be, in quotes, true at all, as far as external reality is concerned. A content that is real, but that does not need to be true in the ordinary sense. And it is this content that helps prepare him to find his way into the occult world. In the fairy tale, we retain something like an offspring, an echo, of what people experienced in ancient clairvoyance. It is a form whose legitimacy is precisely due to the fact that no one who allows it to work upon them will assert that it bears a relationship to external reality. In the imaginative world of fairy tales, the poor lad who otherwise possesses nothing apart from his clever cat takes ownership of a palace that protrudes into immediate reality. And so fairy tale can be a wonderful spiritual food For every age. When we tell children suitable fairy tales, we stir to life in the child's soul something that does not lead them only toward life in a way that requires every idea to accord with external reality, for such a relationship to reality desiccates and lays waste the soul. By contrast, the soul stays alive and fresh, so that it penetrates the whole human organization if it feels a higher reality in the lawful forms and figures of fairy-tale images. These lift the soul entirely above the outer world. A person becomes more vigorous in life, can take hold of life with more vitality if fairy-tales have acted upon their soul in childhood. For Capetius, fairy-tales kindle imaginative perception. It is not what they contain, not what they convey, but the way they unfold, how one aspect links to the next that works on in his soul. One feature allows soul forces to strive upward, another to strive downward, and in others, in turn, an interplay arises between ascending and descending powers. By these means his soul comes into a movement, and there is drawn forth from it something that ultimately enables him to behold the world of spirit, For many, a fairy tale can be the most stirring, stimulating thing. And this is why we find in fairy tales that originated in earlier times something that shows how aspects of ancient clairvoyant consciousness played into them. Originally, fairy tales were not, in quotes, conceived by someone. No one worked them out, unlike the theories of modern folktale scholars who explain fairy tales. No, they were not authored in the way we conceive of this, but are the last remnants of ancient clairvoyance, were experienced in dream states by those who still had such capacities. What was seen in dream was related like the tale of Puss in Boots, which is simply another version of the fairy tale I told you today. All fairy tales first originated as the last vestiges of a primordial clairvoyance. And so a true fairy tale can only be created if either consciously or unconsciously the power of imagination is present, projecting into the soul of the fairy tale creator. Otherwise, a tale will not have that quality. A fairy tale simply worked out randomly can never be right. If someone nowadays chances to write a real fairy tale, this will only be because a longing awakens in them for the ancient times through which humanity once lived. This longing does exist, but sometimes it lurks very hidden in depths of the soul, and people misperceive how things that rise from these hidden depths play into what they consciously create. They fail to see how much of this is also distorted by what they perform with their modern consciousness. So here, once again, I want to emphasize that all poetry and literature can never draw on truth unless it can be traced back to a fulfilled longing for the ancient clairvoyant mode of engaging with the world, or unless it is connected with new and real clairvoyance. This need not come to full and apparent manifestation, but can still shine hidden in shadowy fashion within the depths of the soul. Nevertheless, this connection is there. How many people today still feel the need for rhyme, How many people still feel that a rhyme has a necessity to it? In recitation nowadays the deplorable custom has arisen to suppress the rhyme if possible, to skate over it and really only stress the meaning, that is, the aspect that corresponds to external reality. But this form of poetry, rhyme, is closely connected with a stage in language development that existed at the time when there were still echoes of the ancient clairvoyance. End rhyme is connected, you see, with the singular state of soul that expresses itself after humankind entered its present stage of evolution in the culture of the mind-soul or rational soul. Basically, the period when the rational soul or mind-soul arose in us in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. Was also the time in literature when a memory dawned of the experiences of ancient times, of ancient capacities then to perceive imaginative worlds. This memory is given expression in end rhyme, giving a regular shape and configuration to what shines out in the rational or mind soul. End rhyme was cultivated chiefly as a prevalent aspect something that developed in the fourth post-Atlantean cultural epoch. By contrast, everything that the culture of the fourth post-Atlantean epoch immersed itself in received a very decisive enlivening from Christianity and the influences of the mystery of Golgotha. This poured itself into the European sentient soul. In Europe, the culture of the sentient soul remained at an earlier stage, awaiting a higher culture a culture of the rational soul, that entered from Central and Southern Europe. This lasted beyond the fourth post-Atlantean cultural epoch, so that what had developed in Central and Southern Europe and in the Near East could inform the old sentient soul culture of Central Europe, could be taken up into the strength of will and energy of will that primarily comes to expression in sentient soul culture. And so we see in all Southern cultural influence how regular end rhyme informs poetry, while the will culture that takes up Christianity finds it fitting form in that other kind of rhyme, alliteration. In the alliteration of Norse lands and Central Europe, we can feel the unrolling will that pours itself into culture, standing at the zenith of the fourth post-Atlantean cultural period which is a culture of the mind-soul. It is curious to see how some poets, drawing on an original power of soul, seek to revive the original power of a particular region, trying to point back in a sometimes very inorganic fashion to what once existed. This happened with Wilhelm Jordan, who sought to revive ancient alliteration in his title Nibelungen, As a rhapsodist, he traveled about and tried to revive alliterative verse. People couldn't work out what to make of this, since in our intellectual era, people see language, speech, only as a vehicle for meaning, for content, and not what the sentient soul seeks to express with this alliteration, or what the rational soul seeks to express with end rhyme. The consciousness soul cannot really employ rhyme, any more in the same way, and so people reach for other means. For this reason, Miss von Sievers, Marie Steiner, will give you a sample now of alliterative verse to show how an artist like Wilhelm Jordan was trying to revive ancient conditions. Long quote. And the Norns now came near, whom no one beheld, formed soundless rows, in silence surrounded those two who had plighted their troth. These, drunk upon love, thought it was wind that came murmuring into the hearth, but for other than earthly ears the Norn's song resounded, rang like the rush of a tempest, descending to the night world the depths of Nibelheim, and aloft to the clouds where Valhalla's occupants lived. To you there belongs both salvation and downfall, your will and your wanting, your thinking and being. Now there comes, chained in order eternal, life-masks and illusory hosts of appearance. They draw the designs, they govern the goals, they stir up disgust, they awaken your wishes. Yet yours still the reflection, but what you've become is the way you will turn, and we know the choice. From storehouse eternal, our finger will form the fiber of your life, the thread of your inescapable fate. We spin and we spool, we reel and unroll the tapestry of deeds on the loom of all life. It was us long ago who laid down the threads of the weft, and yours only the pattern to perfect. But the lovelier you let the mesh of the weave form a picture, the greater the power of envy. Yes, the gods of the purer light will not hold it against you for slowly enhancing the measure of man but the night world is grim at all growth of man, for it envies his vaunt to Valhalla, and sheer depths have a share in mortal material. So it fuses forbidden forms into the pattern, and loyalty lapses, oaths fail, and a knot knits up the fabric, a nuisance that gilts scissors fast sunder. The sun-god, he sent To the loveliest womb the most luminous ray For striving most pure But tempters, seducers Sent the desire for gold They dispatched deceiving dreams We knew the choice For to you there belongs both salvation and downfall Destiny decides your heart and your hopes Your star was ascending But now envied Siegfried The song of the Norns is reversing it Turning it in a downward direction and so to heaven and down to hell, as if surf broke on rocks and raged, the storm of the song of the three resounded, unknowing that fate had chained them. Still the hero and Grimhilda held each other lovingly, held each other fast, their souls shared in delirium, delighted in passion's heat and happiness, the glowing of their loving lips. Close quote. Steiner again. When Jordan himself declaimed these verses, he emphasized the alliteration. That is something that a modern person no longer feels is quite appropriate. You see, to feel Wilhelm Jordan's intentions here, his program, one would have to experience the old era within the new in as imaginative way as happened in recent days in our assembly hall at the architect's house during the general assembly when one could feel oneself enveloped in all the astral currents that express what was spoken there. And then one would have to feel how the various aspects of our impulse for knowledge that arose during those days would find figurative embodiment and realization in a Jordan phrase. Then we would properly experience what he recommended as a kind of program by means of which he sought to reintroduce a mood that unfolded in ancient Nordic times. The spring of speech needs only guidance to pour purer, to rush in a speech stream, a word wave right to the rim of the vessels of a former age, to fill them a millennium later, to make new again the powerful primordial wonder of the ancient art of German poetry. Close quote. Steiner again. But something is needed for this, the kind of hearing that can feel the quality of speech sounds. And this in turn is intimately connected with the imaginations of the ancient era of clairvoyance, for that is where a feeling for speech sounds is rooted. But what is a speech sound? It is still an imagination, an imaginative thought. If you say light and air but mean nothing more by this than something bright or blowing, it is not yet imagination. But words themselves are imagination. And if we can still feel their imaginative content, then in the word Licht, light, say, where the I predominates, you can feel something radiant, bright and indeterminate. And in the U of Luft, air, you can send something filled up and self-filling. And since the ray, Strahl, is something thinly filling and air, Luft, gives rise to something wholly filling, therefore an alliteration has an inherent affinity with what fills and fulfills. It is not a matter of indifference if we place alliterating words such as Licht and Luft together, nor if we simply place the names of three brothers in random order or instead in a way that gives a sense that the universal will united them as Gunther, Gernot, Giselher. The sentient soul here felt the working of ancient imagination in alliteration. And in end rhyme, the mind-soul would recognize itself in ancient imagination. And for this reason, too, if speech is given life, it can infuse certain imaginations into the soul even infuse these into dreams, so that we can gain in dream life some of what appears to clairvoyance as a true characterization, for instance, of the elements. It is not always the case, but in the words Licht and Luft, for instance, something arises that if we feel it and it works on into dream life, can in some circumstances allow to spring up in dream imagination itself, A capacity to characterize these elements, those of light and air. People will only discern the diverse mysteries of language when it is led back to its origins, that is, particularly to imaginative perception. You see, language originates from an era when we were not yet poor lads, nor did we have the clever cat, but in a sense we still lived with the giant of imagination and through the limbs of the giant we experienced what had been implanted in speech sounds as audible imagination. When imagination encompasses the tone, and tone pours itself into it so as to fill it like a skin, then speech sound emerges, real speech sound. I wanted to present these things to you today in an unexacting way and without particular context. I wanted to show how, in a certain fashion, we need to re-enliven what we have lost and what has been salvaged of it in our time, what must be regained, as Capacius does, so that human beings can grow on into the coming era in which they can once again participate in higher worlds. The End of Lecture 14